these great sermons from all some of you guys and other guests that have come in. And now I'm sort of going, I wish I'd gone first rather than last because the bar's so high right now. But the one thing I've, I've, I've come to believe over the summer, too, this is a little truism for you, that if you're ever going to go out on the road, uh, speak publicly somewhere, you want Bob Burns to be your front man. Uh, because Bob always has these great, warm, kind introductions. So if I wasn't feeling so good about myself sitting right there in the chair, I feel a lot better right now. So I'm really glad to be able to share with you. So I've worked with Young Life for a long time, uh, 20 years. I've been around kids and youth ministry, but it isn't what I've always done. I have uh, had another career before that. I was a pharmacy major in college. I went to pharmacy school. I took the pharmacy licensing exam. I'm actually a registered pharmacist in the state of Georgia. I still am. And my first job out of college was in pharmaceutical sales. So I worked for this huge pharmaceutical manufacturing company. I had a territory in northeast Georgia. I lived in Athens, Georgia. Drove around in my company car. And the essence of what my job was was to try to get time with doctors, to sit down with them and share information about the, the drugs that our company made or, or give them some research or studies to show them that they'd be good choices for them to use to write prescriptions. And then when somebody got their prescription filled, then we generated sales, we made money. Well, part of my job also had me going to emergency rooms to try to call on the doctors in emergency rooms. And at the time, Athens Regional Medical Center had just gone through this huge renovation. They uh, rebuilt several parts of the hospital, and they built this completely from the ground up, state-of-the-art emergency room. So when it opened, I wanted to go visit it and to call on the doctor there. And when I went, surprisingly, it was not very busy at all. And so I, I'm, I'm talking with the doctor, uh, Dr. Solt, who I'd met before, and he was a young guy, I was a young guy, and we're, it's a casual conversation. In fact, it's so casual that he's literally sitting on the counter in the nurse's station area there, and we're just chatting. I'm leaning up against it. When all of a sudden, around the corner comes this nurse yelling, there's a code in x-ray, there's a code in x-ray, which is a big deal in medical terminology. All of a sudden, all these medical personnel starts grabbing equipment, and they take off down the hallway towards the x-ray area because it means that probably someone is in cardiac arrest right now. Well, I'm just trying to get out of the way. I I don't don't want to cause trouble. So I'm standing there, but I look over to my shoulder, and Dr. Salt's still sitting there. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, he's probably an important character when somebody's in cardiac arrest, but he he hadn't moved. And so there's like a moment of awkwardness where I'm thinking, is he just staying here because he thinks he needs to stay with me? So I go, look, hey, if you got to go take care of something important, you can go right now. And he says, no, no, they'll be back. And I said, what? He goes, no, there's no cardiac arrest. There's no code. He goes, when they renovated the x-ray area, for some reason they put the code button that you push to alert everybody there's a code. They put it in the waiting area of x-ray instead of behind the wall. He goes, I guarantee you, somebody's just pushed the button to see what would happen. And like, no sooner had those words come out of his mouth than that whole team of people come traipsing back down the hall. And I kid you not, this nurse goes, there's not a code. Some kid just pushed the code button in the waiting area right there. It's all good. And, you know, I've always thought about that day. I've thought about it a lot through all these years. And I've always been so impressed with with Dr. Soltz's confidence in that moment. You know, his his poise. And and I've I've thought, you know, isn't it true that, like, that kind of presence in people is really attractive? Like, it's the kind of characteristic you want to have. He was so unmoved, so unpersuaded. It was like he was anchored there. 
And I've often thought, even if I knew where the code button was, and I knew that story, that if somebody had come around the corner and said, there's a code in x-ray, I'd be thinking, but what if this is the time when there's really a cardiac arrest? I couldn't have just sat still like that. I couldn't help but wish that I was confident like that as well, too, in the face of not just a situation like that, but other situations in life where I could just be solid and immovable in the face of a really compelling or believing story. And as I've reflected back on that day more and more, I've realized that there are actually a lot of times in our lives where we hear similar compelling stories, like there's a code in x-ray, but they, they exist on kind of a different plane, a different register for us. They're not necessarily audible, but they're what James K.A. Smith, who wrote a book called We Are What We Love, he calls them cultural liturgies. They're, they're these, these stories that speak to us with almost religious credibility because they speak to our deep needs and our desires, and they do it so persuasively that we find them hard to resist. Like, like you know these kind of stories, like pursue more prestige or, or seek status or, or make yourself more attractive or do something that makes more money or something that makes you more secure. And if you do, I promise I'll give you a sense of worth. I'll give you a sense of security. I will anchor you down in some peace. And of course, the problem is that these cultural liturgies always promise, but they never deliver. But at the same time, I've also noticed this, and maybe you have too, that there are times when we speak of certain kinds of people as, as solid, right? Like you meet somebody of just exceptional character, and you go, that's a solid individual. Or we might even use that term to describe someone who's really mature in their faith. And we go, that's a solid Christian. They're, they're a solid follower of Jesus. David Brooks, who's a conservative writer for the New York Times Really, really thoughtful guy. He has a, has a Jewish heritage, but he's very conversant with evangelicals. He wrote a book a couple years ago called The Road to Character. And in that book, he describes people like that as having iron in their core. Isn't that a great description? Iron in their core. You think about iron. It's just this dense, heavy metal. And whenever you see something that's made out of iron, you're going to reach down and pick it up. Your brain calculates like how much energy it's going to take to get it. And whenever you grab it, it's always heavier than you think. Iron's like that. It's just this, this dense, heavy substance. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to be known or regarded as a solid person? Someone with iron in your core? Wouldn't that be great to be known that way? Well, how does that happen? Well, I think the one thing that it comes down to is worship. The one thing that it comes down to is worship. But when I say worship, I don't necessarily mean worship songs. We sang fantastic worship songs here this morning. I don't mean just worship services. It, it is that, but it's, it's a lot more than that. When I say worship, I'm thinking of worship on this larger scale. What I'm really talking about is, is a allegiance. 
our, our deep loyalties to something outside of ourselves, something bigger than we are. See, worship is this, this undeniable human impulse. It's just embedded deep down inside of us. We're just made with this irrepressible capacity for awe. You know, you could go on a, on a hike today somewhere in the beautiful countryside around Rome, Georgia, and you could get to the top of a hill and you could see a beautiful sunset with all these colors and you could find yourself inspired. You could find yourself taken aback by how beautiful it is. You might even go, man, that's awesome. But I really doubt that you could be standing there and then all of a sudden a deer or a raccoon would come out of the woods and see the same thing and draw in a breath of inspiration and go, yeah, it really is awesome. Like as far as I can tell, and I, I'm no zoologist, but as far as I can tell, animals just aren't given to being awestruck. But human beings are. There's just something about us. And also, too, it's not this learned worship, uh, learned religious impulse. You don't have to be trained to do worship. Everyone worships. So it's really not a question of whether or not you worship. Really, the deep question is, what do you worship? And in fact, psychologists have confirmed this because they've, they've studied groups of people and they've found that, for example, in America, they've done a lot of research and they found that the, the less religious people become, the more likely they are to believe in ghosts and UFOs than people who attend church regularly. So in other words, you don't become more rational when you become less religious. We, we can't seem to squash this impulse to find something outside of ourselves that might hold the promise to meaning and purpose. But the problem is that what we worship, what we give ourselves to, shapes us. If we give ourselves to these compelling cultural liturgies that ultimately can't deliver on giving us meaning or purpose, instead of becoming solid and weighty, we become like those liturgies. We become light and, and vaporous. They're, they're, they're hollow, and they hollow us out. We don't become more. We become less. But don't you know deep down inside of your bones that you were made for more and not less? Well, what I believe is good news is that Jesus is deeply concerned about what we give ourselves to, what we worship. John 1 and Colossians 1, the the writers there uh, go to great lengths to tell us that, that all things come into being through Jesus That everything that's been made comes into being through him. He's intimately acquainted with all things around us. So he's really the originator of all creational and human flourishing. He knows intimately how all this works the best. And in the Gospels, when he encounters people in circumstances where human flourishing is thwarted, he tends to break the conventions and the expectations, and he goes into action. That's when he goes into action, all for the sake of flourishing, of restoring life the way it was meant to be. 
And so this morning, I want to read uh, from John 4, where I think there's a moment that, that illustrates this, that shows us uh, this, this deep concern on the part of Jesus uh, about what we give ourselves to. This is John 4, where Jesus encounters the woman known, uh, the woman at the well known as the Samaritan woman. That's all we know, unfortunately. And there's a lot of verses here. I practice reading this a lot. It's going to take three minutes and 45 seconds. So I hope you're able to stay with me during that, okay? Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you, are now, you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking to her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. says Jesus had to go through Samaria. He was on a mission. And he encounters a Samaritan woman, which is so unconventional. A single Jewish male and a single Samaritan woman. That's not normal. <clears throat> and he encounters her 
at the middle of the day. That's also very unconventional. You didn't typically go draw water in the middle of the day. But through careful and intentional conversation, it comes out why. She, she has a past. She has a, a reputation. And because of her questionable standards, she doesn't gather at the well with the woman of the village as they usually do, which is a very important social time. She's cut off from really a significant dimension of life in that village. She comes to the well at the middle of the day to avoid people. And I imagine that every time she comes carrying her water jar on this walk of shame, she's reminded what an outcast she really is. And then it, it comes out why. Because she's had five husbands. And the, and the man she's with now is actually somebody else's husband. Now, I want to take just a minute to say something in her defense. Because it's easy, and I've heard it done oftentimes, to, to just label her a, a, a loose woman or somebody with loose morals or somebody uh, who's looking for love in all the wrong places. And elements of that could very well be true. But I want you to know that culturally... But if you were a married woman, you typically had zero legal standing whatsoever. So it's far more likely that she, rather, it's very unlikely that she could have left a husband, but far more likely that she would have been kicked out by a husband. And depending on which school of thought kind of uh, you believed at that time, the, the reasons, the justifiable reasons that a husband could kick out his wife were unbelievably simple, uh, because he was just displeased with the way she cooked the food, or he just might have found her annoying. It could have been completely justified in that. And, and in that day, there was often no place for women like that to go. This could have brought a tremendous amount of shame on her family, and they might have felt like, we can't take you back in here. It's too shameful for us. So in light of that, you could see how she could have believed that the next man who came along, who who knew how to promise her hope and security, could really sound believable. And you could see how she could find herself, over time, enslaved to a kind of vulnerability to this sort of narrative. But what Jesus has revealed in this conversation with her, and I believe he's doing this filled with compassion for her, is is her deep, bent, and twisted allegiance to a narrative that promises her everything but delivers her nothing. She's completely hollowed out. There's no flourishing. And I believe this too. Now Jesus can't resist going into action. For some reason, and I don't understand this, but she, after all this comes out, she deflects the attention off of herself and she goes to this question about worship, which seems really random to me. But nonetheless, Jesus goes there with her. But he does this tenderly, but also relentlessly. It's a relentless tenderness on the part of Jesus. He calls her a woman, which is a little difficult to translate well in English from the Greek, but I'll just tell you this. It's the same word that Jesus uses to address his mom two chapters earlier when they're at the wedding in Canaan, it's a much more intimate or affectionate, endearing kind of term. Maybe like, dear one. And Jesus says, look, true worship is not going to be about geography. It's not going to be about place. It's ultimately going to be about allegiance to God in the spirit 
and in truth, what the NIV says. But it might be better to translate that this way. The true worshipers will worship the Father by means of the Spirit and the truth. By means of the Spirit and the truth. And that's truth with a capital T. Who do you think that is? That would be Jesus. So in other words, worship has a, has a Trinitarian flavor to it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But there's also a little foreshadow there too, I believe. Jesus later in John 8 says it's the truth with a capital T that will set you free. And then later, it's the truth with a capital T that goes to the cross on our behalf. And he sets us free from the prison of sin that enslaves us to a kind of perpetual vulnerability that we have to these compelling but empty cultural liturgies. And that these, these liturgies only hollow us out. But he does this so that by means of the Spirit, we can now have our deepest loyalties redirected in the direction they were meant to be, to the Father, so that now we know flourishing. We know delight. We know the truth. And this is the road to iron in your core. Now, you just read this with me, so maybe you're thinking, is that really in the passage? I didn't see it. (laughs) That's a good question. But I think there really is a very powerful transformation that takes place in this woman's life that might be easy to overlook in the midst of all that's going on there. It's not electric and it's not explosive, but it's there. It's quiet. It's somewhat behind the scenes, but it's very real. I just want you to notice it says that she drops her water jar. Right there at the feet of Jesus. Maybe in some ways that's just been this perpetual symbol of shame in her life. But she leaves it there at the feet of Jesus and goes back into the village. Maybe that's a little foreshadow of the cross. And it says that she goes back into the village and she says, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? But listen, you've got to keep in mind that if this had happened the day before or even an hour before, I'm convinced everybody in the village would have given her no attention because she was a person of no account. In fact, it would have been fine to assume that they just wish she would go away. She was an embarrassment to them. They're not going to just follow her because she's animated right now. Something's happened to her. She's different because of this encounter with Jesus. She is now... Someone who's solid, who is substantial. And now everyone's drawn to her. What if I said to you, where are your loyalties? Are they fixed on the God of the universe or on some other cultural liturgy? Well, I'm not going to ask you that. But when I ask myself that question, I find myself feeling a little convicted. Oftentimes, I feel a little bit ashamed of myself. However, what I need to say to you and to me is that I don't believe that was Jesus' intent. It wasn't for her, and I don't believe it is for us. If Jesus was on his way to the cross for the purpose of taking our shame onto himself, why would he bother with it now? I think there's some significant clues about this in this passage. Verse 4, the first one I read to you, it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Actually, he didn't. 
No Jew in that day would have ever said, I have to go through Samaria. But it's a significant clue. Jesus is intent on this encounter with this woman. He's on a mission. He's on the lookout. He's out doing what he says he's about to seek and save what is lost. That's his nature. And his nature reflects what God the Father is like. And even later, Jesus says that that God is out and about on the lookout for his true worshipers. He's out looking. But maybe you're, you're asking, well, to what extent? I mean, would he look for me? Is he looking for you? Even in our divided and distorted loyalties? Is he? You bet he is. Absolutely he is. To illustrate this, I want to read a little passage from a book called Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery, written by a physician who happens to be a very talented writer, a lot of reflections on his days uh, in the operating room. And so here's a story that he reads about a young woman uh, and her husband in the, in the hospital room after he's performed uh, a surgical procedure on her. It says, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles in her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tiny tumor in her cheek, I cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. and He stands on the opposite side of the bed. And together, they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself. He and this wry mouth that I've made. Who gaze at each other and touch each other so generously, greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be this way? Yes, I say, it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. I think it's kind of cute. And all at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I, so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. You see, bent and twisted is what we are. But the God of the universe bends down in Jesus, not to shame us because of our twistedness, not even just to tolerate us because of our twistedness, but to become our twistedness. So that our distorted affections could be set free. So that our deepest loves would be aligned in the same direction with God. So that we could know that the kiss still works. 
so that we could be made whole. Don't you want to be whole like that? Solid. Iron in your core. Well, it matters what you worship. It matters what you give yourself to. It matters what little stories, what cultural liturgies get your allegiance. They shape you. But not only do they shape you, they're the ones that shame you. They're the ones that are always saying to us, chase beauty, it's not enough. Be a better parent because what if your kids don't turn out right? Get some things that seem to have some status and take a picture of it and put a filter on it and put it on social media and pretend like it's your spectacular life every day. But these narratives never deliver. They only remind us constantly of where we fall short. They never meet us in our twistedness. But only Jesus breaks convention and all expectations and actually longs so deeply that we discover our deep worth, our iron in our core, that he becomes our twistedness. You want to be solid? You want iron in your core so that you're planted and anchored like that doctor in the emergency room that day with me? In the swirl and the chaos and the intensity of believable but false liturgies? then we need to be people who are willing to cultivate the habits of allegiance to God by the means of the Spirit and the truth with a capital T. Let's pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed by your your graciousness to be Aslan on the move, on the lookout for us, Because your nature is such that you desire that we become whole, weighty, flourishing people. May we believe that that's true, Father, and may we believe it more today so that we can believe less and less all the other stories that compete for our affections. And may we do it by your Spirit, and may we do it in the truth, who is Jesus who loves us. In his name we pray. Amen.